Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with co-host Eric Trexler, who is apparently recording from his car at the airport parking garage. Eric, thanks for joining yeah, us. We, we record <laughs> and then we, we put the podcast out after the fact, or I'd say big party. We can do a big meetup on the uh, the BWI airport parking deck floor six. It would be a whole lot of fun. But uh little scheduling mix up on my part. So you can't, you can't do a podcast and get on a plane five minutes later, unless you're near the plane. You could certainly try. This could be a new thing for us. Maybe we just catch you at a new, new location from your car every single week. I think we're, well, you you know, you got to ship the papers is, uh, I think something (laughs) similar to what the, what, what the uh, media would say. So we'll get the podcast going. Who do we have today though? It's an exciting day again. Yes, yes, yes. Very exciting. So Today with us, we've got Joe Marks. He is a reporter at the Washington Post. He writes the Cybersecurity 202 Daily Newsletter, um, and it's riveting every single every single one I read. I, I can't get enough, and I'm so excited to talk to Joe about all, all the amazing things he writes about. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. Uh, thanks so much, Rachel. You're far too kind to me. <laughs> well, it's... You know, I, I can't imagine what it's like because, you know, you write about, you know, policy and politics of cybersecurity and you've been writing about cyber for quite some time. Um, and what I love about uh, the 202 is, is you know, the kind of a lot of them are short and sweet. Some are longer form. Right. I know that. Um, but I, I, I've been looking through all of them and, and in collaboration with the other writers as well. And there's so much volume to write about. How can you even narrow down uh, when there's fires burning all over the all over the <laughs> the landscape? How, how can you decide which ones you really really want to dig into, and and then just which ones that you can kind of you know have folks on the team net out, or how how does that even work? I'm just fascinated. That was my question, Rachel. <laughs> I mean, there's so much out there. How do you pick it? Well, that's yes. one of the strange benefits of having your main job being writing a daily newsletter, because I write this sort of extended top of the newsletter. And then um, our researcher, Aaron Schaefer, writes a big chunk at the bottom. And I, I help out with that sometimes. But my, my job is to write one thing a day. So in most other reporting jobs, you know, one thing happens and you're digging into it and trying to get it out. Usually you're trying to get an enterprise piece you've been working on for the last week and fires keep popping up here and yeah. there. And you could never sort of focus on one thing long enough. I have the benefit of, you know, once I figure out what that one thing for the day is and provided something, you know, huge doesn't break that, you know, takes all the air out of the room and forces me to switch gears, I can really dig in for that, dig into it for that day. That's That's great. Some some days that means making a hard choice because there's a, you know, a huge amount of stuff going on and there are bigger picture things that I really want to talk about that I don't get a chance to. And then some days it's, you know, the the dog days of summer and nothing is happening and you have to figure out what the heck you're going to write about. Um, but it's, it's sometimes the one thing is easier than, than all of the things. Right. Um, so I, what happens when you pick the one thing and then like sunburst goes public, like, like that happens, it occurs in the afternoon. Like, do you pick it the next day or do you, do you walk around like, oh, I picked the wrong one? Thing. It, I mean, if it's big enough, we, we switch gears. I have, um, I think when, when Chris, Chris Krebs was fired by tweet, I believe it was maybe 7 p.m. 
(laughs) I started making calls and emails and and working on the next day. So, you know, something big enough happens and, you know, you switch gears. Absolutely. Because it's it's important to be, you know, kind of like fresh and timely, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. If you're a day late, then, you know, you've you've kind of missed the party. Yeah. And also, I mean, the the goal of of the whole 202 franchise, which is the Daily 202 Power Up, um, Pulse 202, Tech 202, is you, you want to give people something each morning that sort of starts the conversation for them and helps them understand what's going on that day and, and gives a little bit of the second day story on the first day. And so if you're writing about something that's, you know, out of the news by that point, you're not, you're not really doing that right. to people. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm, um, I uh, I also wondered. I was looking through Twitter, and I it looks like John Oliver maybe uh, <laughs> featured featured your infrastructure story on there. So that was pretty cool in a recent episode. Yes, <laughs> it, was, it was very cool. I have, I have not watched it yet. I just heard about this. I was looking at all the tweets, and it, I think it was not just me. I think that uh, almost everyone who covers this stuff for a major publication got at least one story uh, highlighted in that episode. But yeah, I, I just realized that our former researcher, who's now a cyber scoop, Tanya Riley, was kind enough to tweet it out. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, a minor career highlight. <laughs> well, I love that show. So congratulations on that. And, you know, it's, and I really love the article that you wrote about it too. I mean, you look at it, it's what a, a $1 trillion infrastructure package of which $1 billion would go to state and local governments. And, I mean, a billion dollars is not, is that even enough? Is it, how far can that actually go, Joe? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure it's absolutely nowhere near enough, but it's really the first yeah. time any kind of cash infusion this size has ever been. It's not approved yet. It's off to go through the house, but has been right. even seriously considered. It goes back, we were talking a little bit before the program about just what a massive lift it is to get even federal government agencies into a yes. decent place of, having updated equipment, having decent cyber hygiene, things are so much more difficult at the state and local level. And that's just Absolutely. been a thing that, you know, in a handful of places, I'm sure, you know, big cities, um, you know, well-funded states that, that care about this that have made some efforts. But, you know, you go down to, especially not the, you know, top and mid-tier cities, but you go down to, you know, my hometown is Iowa City, Iowa. That's, I don't know what their annual budget is, but what's left over for cybersecurity is not enough to, fend off, you know, a major ransomware attack. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that in ransomware where second tier cities, I mean, we've heard about Baltimore, we've heard about Mm -hmm. Atlanta, but there are also a lot of, I'll call second or third tier locations that are getting pounded, right? Because Mm -hmm. they don't have the protections. I'm, I'm, you know, the adversary is making the easy choice. Mm -hmm. Why, Why go after a New York city or a San Francisco when we can go after, you know, pick your, I don't want to pick on anybody, but Fargo, North Dakota, I will pick on somebody, right? How much are, what is their budget and what kind of control do they have? They're still going through digitization, Mm -hmm. right? It's some kind of digital modernization strategy. So we see that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, but that's, I guess it kind of gets to a a really interesting, uh, I guess, point, right? And, and particularly with your writing and, and it, it must be very difficult um, as we see these attacks happen or ransomware or, you know, companies kind of caught off guard. And, and as a reporter, 
Um, do you ever kind of fall like you just want to like shake people in your writing and just like, why aren't you doing basic cyber hygiene? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? I mean, you don't want to blame the victim, but sometimes you're like, some of this stuff is just one on one. Yeah, the bigger picture, I think that's a a shift that's been happening in the industry um, and and in Congress also over the last couple of years. Is that you know I, I started covering the stuff for Politico in 2014. And people say very often, and you know, let's let's remember not to blame the victim. This is, you know, right. they, at the level we were covering then, it would be, you know, uh, attacks from intellectual property, theft from China, stuff from Russia, things like that. They can't defend against a nation state. I think there's been a, we're in the middle of a shift where you don't want to blame the victim entirely, but sometimes people leave the door open, and so you have to right. draw different lines about it. You, you, you know, no one wants mm-hmm. to blame someone for like solar. You know, you, you get. Um, caught through a zero day and solar wind, you know, that is not something you can reasonably blame a company for. You know, you get uh, hacked because you were sharing right. a password without two-factor authentication, and the password was, you know, something immensely easy to to guess. Well, you know, at, at that point, right. the, the, the victim does deserve some responsibility for what ultimately happened. Right. Do you find when you're talking, speaking to either the victims or state, you know, representatives of state and local governments or companies that you tend to know a lot more about the industry, the threat, the risks, the adversarial intent than they do? It's sort of or are they pretty well informed. I mean, the, the people I talk with tend to be, um, you know, either the directors or the IT staff in these places. So the answer is usually no, but usually no one is listening to that. You know, like they understand what the threat is. But trying to uh, get that out to the rest of the organization is pretty rough. I, one thing I might mean, spend probably big chunks of uh, 2019 and 2020 covering election security. And you talk to um, the sector of the state, you talk to um, county level election directors, by and large, they really understood what was going on. They understood the resources they need. Um, they understood what the threat was in a pretty elaborate way. And then they were the ones who taught me to understand it because that's a very you know, specific part of um, a specific niche area of a threat that has its, its own um, concerns. And, and they've been dealing with uh, security of all sorts of different kinds, not just hacking for decades upon decades upon decades. The issue is whether they have the resource to do, resources to do it and how you can get it done you know, with limited resources, with a whole bunch of volunteers who tend to, you know, run things on election day, you know, with not a whole lot of help from Congress for the first part of the Trump administration, some more later, but, you know, money coming out on cycles that aren't necessarily helpful for election administrators. It's interesting you say that. How, how did they how did they come to understand the threat, the risk? I mean, we mentioned Chris Krebs and CISA earlier in the conversation. You know, that's one thing I've been trying to, to, to look at. And I was, um, it was, it was a thing I was talking with people about at, um, Black Hat and Death Con recently, because obviously right now, uh, the big push, um, from the executive branch is on securing critical infrastructure. And there are some elements of critical infrastructure that are really secure. Financial services has been working on this for years. You know, healthcare mm-hmm. is getting better, um, and so forth. And then there's some that just have, have not gotten better over the last, decades and, you know, are, are really Ever, quite yeah. vulnerable to ransomware. And, and so obviously elections were not critical infrastructure in 2016, became so later. But we saw a real shift in a couple of years there. Um, I mean, one was 
this was a pretty tight knit community of people who've been doing security of a kind for years, not necessarily the sort of complex um, election cybersecurity that we focused on from 2016 to 2020, but they've been securing against mm-hmm. storms and securing against hurricanes and securing against power outages and things like that. So they were used to dealing with complex problems like this. And the other part, I don't, I have some ideas about it. But I'm not a hundred percent certain what it was. I mean, part of it was a um, real big federal government push from CISA and those guys. I think a really strong understanding of the threat and a pretty good partnership early on between the Election Assistance Commission and what became the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, Matt Masterson being the guy who moved between those two and brought the election folks to the cyber folks and the cyber folks to the election folks. Um, and I think maybe it was just a certain, if you get a certain amount of raw terror across an entire industry, you can make changes in a relatively short period of time in very distinct ways, right? You can get voting machines that have paper trails. You can get sensors on uh, voting infrastructure. You can get, you know, these these basic things in place. And, and the question is, you know, is that does that level of terror exist at this point? Um, and you know, industry moving terror across critical infrastructure you know, have the ransomware attacks of Colonial Pipeline and JBS and elsewhere um, uh, instigated that kind of terror. And I don't know if that's true true at this point. Right. It's I almost with focus, we can't, I, I keep cutting you off, Rachel. No, I apologize. Okay. All, all I was going to say was with focus, we seem to have proven that we can protect ourselves in at least this example. Yeah, right. I, I think that's the absolutely election true. was several months. It wasn't the election wasn't forever. It isn't into perpetuity, right. right? You're not trying to protect. It was a finite, although large and distributed amount of of systems and capabilities. Mm-hmm. It, it was something the whole country did seem to focus on, and we were successful. Now, I yeah. might, I mean, to, to be I clear, might say there was probably a diplomatic component. Yeah, go ahead. And, and, and an offensive component. I mean, the, the, according to my colleague, Ellen Akashima's reporting, I mean, Cyber Command did shut down the Internet Research Agency for, for a chunk of time, too. You know, there was a real focus on um, stopping the adversary in addition to this. And, and to be clear, there, there are real problems. I mean, um, they are wrong, but there are a number of people who will tell you that the election uh, was not secure. There was a big symposium about it recently. You know, there's a lot yes, of disinformation yeah. still floating around about all of this, and things were not 100% secure, and they they never will be. But on the you know the absolute bedrock principles of having paper trails for votes, being able to verify that votes were counted correctly, being able to scan networks, you know, 95 to 98% of uh, voting areas in the country were secured in that way, and that, and that was just a, a yeah. massive shift from 2016. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's that was one of the things I wanted to ask as well. I mean, it, I think it's fascinating. We're still talking about the election and and the cyber symposium, you know, with these promises that never really oh. materialized. And I was, uh, you know, following that tweet thread. What was his name? Robert Graham. Yeah. And, 
You know, he's like, I'm here in the front row. I'm ready to come <laughs> up and talk. I'm ready to, you know, yeah. and they never called him up. And it's, I, you know, I imagine, what is that like? I mean, a, a, as a reporter, you know, when you have these kind of follow on stories mm-hmm. and it's, you know, how, how much weight do you want to lean into certain things when, you know, the, the data doesn't materialize to kind of, you know, keep legitimizing, I guess, why, why this conversation continues to happen? I think, I mean, not, not just in cybersecurity, although cybersecurity, just because of the nature of it has had to deal with this more than a lot of other beats. But I mean, really for the last, uh, especially, I mean, since the beginning of the Trump administration, to be blunt about it, but before then too, um, the effect of disinformation has been really big. And the, uh, the sort of the standard journalistic model of you find the truth and print it isn't always perfectly capable of dealing with things like that. And, and, you know, I, I certainly, um, you know, throughout the Trump administration got um, a lot of practice in figuring out the best way to possibly write about conspiracy theories, because, you know, A, you want to explain what the theory is, and sometimes they just don't in, in uh, co- uh, they don't cohere internally, so they're difficult to explain. You want to explain right. that it is wrong and that it is baseless, um, to the greatest mm-hmm. extent you can. And then you want to explain what the truth is. And that's a lot to do um, in a news article and in a morning newsletter. And you want to be really wary of and, and concerned about the extent to which, you know, repeating a lie, even if you're debunking the lie, sometimes just rests in people's head. That's, you know, there have been yes. multiple studies about that. That's the thing we just haven't figured out. Because you, you can't not address this stuff on the one hand. On the exactly. other hand... You, right, you, you right. want the result of journalism to be a the closest thing we can get to a shared understanding of truth. And if mm-hmm. there is an extent to which the practice of journalism is not contributing to that, you have to reckon with it somehow. And we're at the beginning of that conversation, not the end of it, I think. I don't I don't think a lot of I don't think all journalists would agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Like, I I think some might feel they're out there to not necessarily report the truth, but report the story that they want to convey. I mean, I I don't know when I when when I watch the news or or read different periodicals, whether it's the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, across you definitely certain journalists come across as having a a slant um, in my experience, maybe I, I don't know. I, I am I am really attuned to disinformation, misinformation, and and Joe, it's really hard to figure out. You know, is Joe Mark saying what <laughs> he wants me to hear, or you know, did he get to the bottom line truth to the best of his ability? And, and I think some journalists. I mean, you still, Rachel, you're giving me that that face. I love it. <laughs> I love the debate that's coming. But, but you look at some some uh, maybe these are more opinion uh, what would we call them Rachel some of them are you know on, on a legit newscast or, or in a periodical you'll 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 see the opinion in columnists like op-eds where, right yeah yeah I mean I, I it's it's really hard I think for a lot of people to distinguish between okay this is factual reporting to the best of our ability versus this is the direction we want to push our audience for ratings or for subscriptions or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, journalism has always been a much more complex landscape than just the um, uh, find and report truth to the best of our abilities. You know, it's, I mean, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could read The Nation. That's, you know, 
obviously it's, it's reporting, but it's reporting from a particular viewpoint, same as, you know, the National Review or something like that. So, so that's nothing terribly new. And that's, it's not exactly the op-ed pages, but it is, you know, journalism from a particular perspective. You know, the mission statement of the Washington Post is, and of the, um, the news pages, not the opinion pages, you know, is and has always been, uh, you know, find the truth and report it to the best of your ability. I think that, you know, in the, this is true in cybersecurity, it's true in pretty much every beat, you know, in the age of social media and competing information, competing things, we're, we're trying to figure out how to um, talk about that. And um, it, it, the thing is, it, it, it is a, you know, capital O objectivity has never been totally achievable. It's always been a thing to strive toward. And I right, think right. journalism in general, those of us who try to be as objective as possible with the understanding that, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a goal, it's an end state, it's never a perfect and easy thing, um, are in the process of you know, trying to get better about talking about that process and talking about trying to achieve that, you know, not pretending that we can ever achieve it. You know, I, my newsletter comes out every day. That means I've got time to talk to three, four, five people before it goes out. Sometimes I'm working on other things. You know, I, I do the best I can to present the best vision of what I think uh, matters in an analytical way at, you know, 5, 6 p.m. the night before. And then that's what comes out. It's always going to be a rough draft. It's never going to be perfect. And it, it's never going to give you that perfect, you know, capital O objectivity uh, that we strive for. So with with the you know with the increase of disinformation and misinformation, I, I've seen a lot of studies saying it is on the rise. Um, if you disagree, let me know. But how do you how do you become more diligent? How has your job changed to try to get to ground truth? I imagine it's gotten more difficult. Um, more difficult, I suppose. I, don't know. I mean, the Maybe thing not. about disinformation is it's you know I'm not the target of it. I mean, I am. We all are. But it's you know if you're uh, you have a you know Facebook or Twitter campaign saying that you know Black Lives Matter is trying to you know undermine voting in X Y Z spot. You know that's not going to make it into the Washington Post. It's going to make it into your Facebook feed. So you know that that's not right, the right. thing that precisely gets in the way. I you know I, I will say that the the kind of range of things that uh, politicians, members of Congress, etc you know, will say and its correlation with some version of truth that they are, you know, massaging, but not totally abandoning that, that, that connection has gotten looser over the last 20 years, probably. I mean, over the course of my entire journalism career, and that's a challenge, right? You don't want to, um, if, if you're balancing something that has, an 80% basis in reality versus some that has a 20% basis in reality, you don't want to make that a he said, he said, she said, she said. Right. Right. That's a great point. 
Do you find, um, you know, and speaking of, of journalism, though, and, and things like Pegasus spyware, and, you know, it's almost like the the role of journalists has gotten a little more dicey mm. these last few years as well. I mean, it's mm. uh, particularly, you know, after 2016, and, you know, I've spoken with other folks like the Wall Street Journal, you know, who were, you know, kind of getting targeted in some way, you know, with, with people not happy with what they're reporting. And then now you're hearing the spy spyware happening in, in, in other parts of the world in here. Um, you know, how, how does that make you feel about kind of the future of, of the profession? I mean, it, it seems like it's more important than ever as mm-hmm. we have all these other things going on. Um, it is. And this is, I mean, sort of two different points to that. One, I mean, I think uh, spyware generally, Pegasus in particular, um, is one of the reminders about how truly international all of these concerns are. You know, this is... Um, you know, once upon a time, surveillance was the business of, you know, the governments of a handful of governments and, and, you know, a government's ability to conduct surveillance was, you know, roughly equal to its, you know, power, uh, it's a, it's, it's budget and its power elsewhere in the globe. Now that stuff is, is all for sale. Um, a, that just makes individuals less secure. B, it's sort of, you know, a threat to, uh, the global progress of democracy to the extent that it's making any progress these days. You know, if you, if you can't organize and talk about the government in private in some way and speak your mind, then it's just going to be much tougher to, uh, combat the government in any way. You know, it's the, the, the power of totalitarian regimes or authoritarian regimes to, um, limit and track their adversaries, whether they're journalists, activists, whoever, both at home and, and, and abroad, which is, I think, what a lot of the Texas Project right. uncovered, is really concerning, right? It's, I mean, the, the power of no. authoritarians to stay Absolutely. to retain power is getting greater and greater and greater, and technology is enabling that. Yeah. Well, and you and combine it with the disinformation, misinformation mm-hmm. component, right? And it becomes really scary because mm-hmm. now you know that narrative is really being controlled mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's Rachel, really scary. You were going to ask. Well, no, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting dovetail into you know you you had written this article too about what's going on with Apple, right? Mm-hmm. And and this whole you know, kind of how, how they scan for, you know, child pornography mm-hmm. and, but, you know, it, it's kind of this full circle, right? We were talking about this, I think, years ago when there was, um, what was it? It was like a mass, uh, uh, a gun, a gun attack, right? In, in, oh, San in California. Attack. Yeah. Yes. San Bernardino. Yes. And now here we are back again with this discussion about, you know, the back door and, you know, all the, all the things that could go wrong, but then you weigh that with, what could go right in, in terms of kind of, you know, trying to mitigate, um, you know, illegal activities. Although I, you know, I think from that article, it was also talking about, uh, well, sure, you shut this pathway down, they're going to find another, mm-hmm. right? I mean, which is, which is always kind of the complexity there. And, um, you know, I was, I, it was such an interesting article, because I felt like you gave me this whole 360 mm-hmm. view. But, you know, it, is it, is it hard not to want to because I imagine sometimes I would be so angry. I would be like, Rah! I just want to talk about that. But it's, you know, you're getting these very meaty subjects. I mean, how do you how do you navigate forward? And, you know, it, can you only do one article, too? I mean, it's it seems like some things there's so much to explore. How how can you just do it in like the one, I don't know, 800 word or 600 word article? 
Well, that's another good thing about the newsletter is that yeah, I, I don't have to. I I, I got to get six hundred words out, you know, every every day. But there's always another day, and there's always another right. shot at it. And and the um the Apple scanning system, I'm sure I will return to at some point in the future. Um, on that point in particular, I I find that fascinating because the the going dark debate, and this is sort of an extension of the going dark debate, not exactly the same thing. Um, has been going on, you know, in some form since the 90s, um, more explicitly since 2014, when um, Comey, then FBI Director Comey, first started uh, mm-hmm. sounding alarm bells about the way in which end-to-end encryption was keeping them from doing investigations. And I think we are in this process of trying to figure out this balance between privacy and security. And mm-hmm. the, you know, in 2014... Uh, what the FBI wanted was some kind of backdoor access into end-to-end communications. Really, the vast majority, uh, as near 100% as you can get of cybersecurity folks said, that's a bad trade-off. You know, this is not to say... bad trade-off. Yeah, Apple said it was a bad trade-off. This is not to say, um, as as did most other platforms, this is not to say that what you are, that people you are trying to find and gather data on with a warrant is not valid and important and would not contribute to catching terrorists, criminals, uh, purveyors of child pornography, um, and other bad people. But the trade-off for everyone in cybersecurity is too much. Um, this, it seems like it's still, from what I can tell, the vast majority of cybersecurity folks say it's still a bad trade-off, even though, yeah, this this could make a big dent in the spread of, of child pornography material, um, could protect a lot of children from perhaps abuse, certainly from that, that abuse being spread and repeated over and over again. Most people still say it, it's not worth the trade-offs of what could happen with the system, but some people say it is worth the trade-offs. And I think that's right. a balance we're going to have to strike at some point. And it's not a decision that's going to be made by technologists. It's going to be a decision that is made by lawmakers um, and the people right. who vote them in or out. Um, and it's a thing that's never going to go away. I mean, we're, we're going to make an, a, um, a compromise at some point in some way on this between technology companies, right. lawmakers, and voters. And that's just going to be an ongoing dialogue for the foreseeable future. Um, and ideally, I mean, one thing you can say about the Apple system is it was probably developed under pressure from the government to some extent, but it was not developed right. in response to a particular crisis, which I think right. in the past, each of the main pivot points we've had before has been about mm-hmm. a crisis. It was about the San Bernardino shooting and trying to get into that iPhone. Um, There's another situation somewhat like that that did, did, was the second time around, so it didn't get as much focus a couple of years later. Um, there was the Bill Barr push on limiting child porn- the spread of child pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this was not in response to a crisis like that. And I think one thing that right. um, people have said that has struck me is that at some point, if we don't come to a compromise this way, it's going to happen in a crisis, right? Congress is going to get an uproar. Right. They're going to pass something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's going to be worse off for everyone. 
It's a it's a really great point you make is it it seems like there's this this ongoing dialogue in in cybersecurity and it's you know are are you being too alarmist or you know or is that you like chicken little and the sky is falling and then you know but we have this continuous discussion of has has the bottom truly fallen out yet uh you know so it's it seems like you can't really win <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you can win. We know that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, you, you guys ahead, have been in this field much longer than I have and are much more knowledgeable than I am. But, you know, 2014, I started covering this maybe a month or two after we launched the Politico Pro um, Morning Cybersecurity Newsletter, now Weekly Cybersecurity, because it half of, mostly went behind a paywall. Uh, but, you know, a month or two after we launched that, out come the PLA indictment. For the very first time, and it was a, a watershed. It was huge. Everyone thought it was the hugest thing that could happen. And then there was Tard, and then there was J.P. Morgan, and then there was, and then there was the 2016 election, and then there was Solar Wind, and then there was this state of ransomware attack. And you know, whoever would have thought that you know a president of the United States would be walking up to Vladimir Putin with a list of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors and like trying to cut a deal on it? That that was not envisioned in 2014. Um, it seems as if we're not near getting a handle on it and it's going to get bigger and the bottom's going to keep falling out more and more over the next several years. Yeah, no, we've been talking about that for years, even on the show for years. It just, it keeps getting worse. And like, there hasn't been a, a red line. There hasn't been a, an answer, a silver bullet, which we know don't exist in cybersecurity. It's just, you know, you, you've got endless lifetime uh, reporting coverage, which is one of the positives, I guess. Yeah. One of the few journalists with security. career security. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my mother used to tell me, I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast once. She always wanted me. She was like, become a mortician. You're in business for life. And it's like, yeah, yeah it'll always be. I'm like, eh, not the business I want to be in. Same thing with cybersecurity, though. It would be great. If we could secure our infrastructure, if we could secure systems and communications so people could go and creating things, you know, they could focus on doing the job, the business, whether for pleasure or for work that they want to do. We uh, we're definitely getting further behind every year. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what was this report we were just talking about before we got on the uh, the Senate Homeland mm-hmm. Security Committee recently updated their report, and you know that I, I think the the headline was white. You know, data is still at risk, and um, I don't know. I mean, it's Joe. You're kind of you know you're in the underbelly of of government and and politics, and you know, can these agencies ever? ever get to a good place, right? And, and, and I think your article kind of acknowledged some of the challenges that are there, right, in terms of how they operate. And, you know, you see CISAs are doing really well, but that's the charter, <laughs> right, <laughs> basically of what they do. So how do, how do other agencies get there? Can they get there? I mean, I think they well, can. I think CISA, part of their charter, go ahead, Joe, sorry. Oh, no, no, you, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say part of their charter is being responsible for and helping protect the infrastructure of America. And I don't think they're doing very well there. I, I think that's a very difficult task. Many would say impossible. And that's one where where you don't have that direct control, that direct funding. That's a struggle. Oh, Go yeah. Ahead, I mean, just to, to take the first issue, I, um, can the government get there? I mean, it's never going to get there 100%. Can it do a lot better? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before with the elections model, right? Is, is there enough terror? You know, I, I started covering right. um, government technology for a, a 
a site called Mexico. It was part of Atlantic Media. It's split off now. But back in 2011 was when I arrived there before I was covering cybersecurity and covering the you know terrible legacy systems, you know, 50-year-old systems at IRS um, and, you know, all of the old legacy technology spread all across government for a couple of years before I started covering cybersecurity. And, um, you know, what is it going to take to to fix that? I mean, it could happen, but it's going to take lots and lots and lots of money and a very, very concerted effort to do it. And it's probably going to take what we were talking about before, a lot of terror to do it. You've seen big changes. Right. There's after OPM, the OPM breach, there was a big cyber sprint by the Obama administration that made real strides. I mean, things got substantially better after OPM. They didn't get better enough. Solar winds still happened. Um, I think you saw some uh, big changes over the last several years with um, the the creation of CISA out of the NPPD. Um, new authorities that CISA has to uh, issue these um, uh, binding operational directives saying you must uh, get to a point where you are patching software within 30 days or 90 days, et cetera. Um, you must remove Kaspersky and, and, and Huawei from all of your systems. Right. I mean, there are big government-wide things that are happening. Um, is it keeping up with the pace of the threat or falling right. behind? I'm not sure. It, it is certainly not solving the problem to this point. Right. Could there be something big enough that would instill enough terror to make that happen? I, mean, I don't know. Clearly, OPM and solar winds have not been enough yet. Right. I think there will always be risk in the system, right? I mean, just like you will always have criminals in society. It's how do you protect yourselves? Where do you spend your time? I'm certainly not seeing enough focus on risk, mm-hmm. right? High value assets, you know, mm-hmm. understanding the business. And I know we're talking government here, but understanding the business of the government. What is the mission critical component? What What's the most high value components of the business that we've got to protect. I see a lot of peanut butter spreading, Joe. (laughs) I see a lot of mandates coming down from the administration, congressional inquiries. You know, we look at the FISMA reports. You do this compliance checklist based Mm -hmm. security where I have yet to see many really say, okay, what business are we in? We only have so much, so many assets. Where's the risk and how do we protect that to the best of our ability? And, and we just aren't having that dialogue yet. Yeah, and to their credit, I mean, there is a lot of talk about that. I mean, CISA talks endlessly about high-value assets and so forth. Um, people understand it, but, like, the extent to which that becomes a box-checking exercise at the agencies when it gets there, you know, it's, it's uh, I think people understand, many people understand the scope and the nature of the problem. The will to actually fix it is is perhaps not there yet. I, I am right. seeing in, in my travels the the understanding of the scope which you speak mm-hmm. of. Um, it's growing, right? It's it's growing from people who have been in you know end of career where they they never work with computers in some cases ever, right? <laughs> they have people who still print out emails for them, believe it or not, right? They're starting to understand. We see it in the commercial space as board level issues. Mm-hmm. I think the government is is coming up to speed there, but it, I do think generationally there will be. A, a growth as as people age out of the system and, and the, you know, the millennials and the workforce mm, that grew up right. with some level of compute understanding, they've just right. got a better understanding. I'm, I'm running this financial application for the IRS. Oh, okay. So there are bad guys, there are adversaries mm. out there who can not only, you know, go through physical security, which was the old concern, 
right? Mm-hmm. Stealing paper, but they can come in electronically or they can come in through a partner. And, mm-hmm. and I am seeing growth there. It's just, it's not fast enough. Never fast well, enough, Rachel. Well, but, you know, but how can it be, I guess? And, you know, and when you hear about uh, this other great article too, it's, um, about ransomware, right? We can't we can't stop hearing about ransomware today. But it was it was interesting to, you know, to see you you know you consider folks like you know China, right? That they're in their infancy, right? Mm-hmm. Iran, Brazil, you know, and and these countries that actually have I, I imagine in my head like these dedicated government agencies, like that's all they do. Mm-hmm. Like in Russia, you know, you hear about this is all they do. They are just focused on attacks, mm-hmm. attacks and. How do you how do you combat that when you've got so many players out there um, and they're incentivized by the government to go out there and 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 do damage? Like how do you how do you get ahead of that if you're the U.S.? I that that's the challenge we're facing. You know, I, I think you make a good point that <laughs> the the world so far that we've paid a whole lot of attention to is you know we're really concerned about. Um, attacks, cyber attacks from, you know, these near peer uh, Russia, China adversaries. We're significantly concerned about Iran and North Korea. We're not paying a whole lot of attention and, and we're increasingly concerned about cyber criminals that sort of operate with impunity in, in Russian former Soviet territory and a few other places. Um, we haven't gotten so concerned yet about all of these second tier nations that are developing uh, hacking capabilities, trying to find their own zero days. And that's the world that's going to emerge, right? Every, every conflict is going to be a cyber conflict. You know, Israel and the Middle East is going to be a cyber conflict. It, it already is to some extent, Pakistan and India. Right. I mean, any place you look at conflict in the world, there's going to be a really heavy digital component to it. And I'm not sure that we're remotely prepared for that world. Yeah. No, we'll have to be. Yeah, okay, so go ahead, Eric. Joe, yeah. I got a plane to catch. <laughs> got a question You're such for a you, though. Bummer, bummer. Okay. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, it's been a great discussion, but what inspired you to move into cybersecurity? I've got to ask. Um, I was, uh, like most journalists, I had very little power over my career, and I just fell into it. I was, um, it, it would be. It would be, and it is hilarious to a lot of people I grew up with that I am covering anything that touches on technology because that's, <laughs> I was a geeky English major in college, and um, that's still my character in many ways. Um, I uh, came to D.C. for grad school in international affairs, um, having been a journalist for many years in the Midwest, and I wanted to kind of work my way into the East Coast media establishment. And... Uh, showed up for grad school in 2008, left in 2010. A lot of things went wrong in the country during that time period, including journalism contracting by about half to two thirds. So the job that I got, um, not directly, but about a year out of grad school was covering government technology for NextGov, which is a a great site if you're at all interested in government technology. Um, Did that for several years. And then uh, Politico was starting its, cybersecurity uh, vertical, Politico Pro cybersecurity vertical. And they just, mm-hmm. they um, DM'd me and, you know, figured that a background in government technology was close enough. There were, you know, there's still surprisingly, given how important this stuff all is, there's still maybe two dozen uh, reporters who really cover cybersecurity policy 
in a dedicated way. Back mm-hmm. then, there were half a dozen or so. So you sort of had to look elsewhere. Right. And I was lucky enough that they looked for me. And, you know, the beat got bigger and bigger. And I was lucky to just kind of ride the wave. And it, I, I got to tell you, it's been, you know, what a great thing to cover for these last six years, you know, not just because there's always something happening um, and not just because it's become a bigger and bigger concern in Washington and the rest of the nation internationally, um, but also because it, it incorporates pretty much anything that you could be interested in, which is what always keeps me interested. You know, mm-hmm. like there's an, a big element of intelligence in this. There's a big element of economic security in this. There's uh, yes. uh, certainly a good chunk of technology, which I'm still not great at. I just know who to call to explain it to me. Um, and, and there's just a, a big chunk of uh, global international conflict and sort of national, just basic questions of national security and how a country values what it takes care of and what it takes to run a country well that increasingly is, you know, a White House concern. So it's it's been a fascinating thing for the last six years, and I'm sure it will continue to be. It, it strikes like me a... that your path, your, your path isn't dissimilar to other English majors who mm-hmm. go into business or marketing majors or finance. I mean, cyber is, cybersecurity is all around us, as we were talking about you know, the end of the show here. Oh yeah. I'm surprised so, by how many people Rachel, in the industry or policy I run into who were history majors and English majors and so forth. This is, you know, not, a, not a field of, of mere technologists, even though there are some amazing technologists among that, this industry. It's, yeah. It sounds like it has all the great components too, Joe. Uh, I, I feel like you need to write a screenplay <laughs> or something that's like amazing thriller, this action thriller. <laughs> Nobody would believe it either. You know, if you, if you were to write, you know, of all the things that you've you've covered over the years, I think that would be amazing, amazing. <laughs> that or a book or both. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm just waiting for them. Whenever you're ready, you can I'm see here. the I'm artist here. in our uh, in our <laughs> podcast. Here. I agree, though. Yeah, all day long. All day long. Well, Eric, I know you need to hop on a plane. So, Joe Marks, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so much fun uh, talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Eric. It's been it's great, Joe. Love reading. Yeah, love reading. Keep keep sending the information, putting mm-hmm. the information out there. Cybersecurity 202, what's the best way for people to get to you? Um, you can subscribe to the newsletter. If you go to... If you just Google Washington Post Cybersecurity 202, you can get to one of them. There's a quick sign-up link there. If you go to find me on Twitter, um, I was, unfortunately, the first Joseph Marks got in before I did. So I'm Joseph underscore Marks underscore. Um, go there in my bio. You can see a link to uh, click subscribe to the yes. newsletter. Um, if you don't want to have it in your inbox every day, you just want to Google it sometimes, just Joseph Marks Cybersecurity 202. Click my bio on the post site, and you can get pretty much um, uh, every thing I've ever written in reverse chronological yes. order. Yes. Highly recommend subscribing <laughs> though, everyone. Please subscribe. Agreed. Just like we, yes, and read it because it's, <laughs> you learn so much. And so thank you, Joe, for all the work that you do because I, I feel like a smarter person every time <laughs> I get to read one of your articles because I, you know, I feel like I'm getting a nice, you know, kind of 360 view because you do get great points of view uh, represented there. So to, to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. Um, you know, don't be afraid to subscribe to us as well. You know, get a fresh episode in your inbox every Tuesday. Uh, until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint.
For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.